All right, as those third grade and below go out those doors or those doors, let's have the rest of us pray. Father, thank you for the time of musical worship that we have enjoyed together, doing all the other things that we've done. We trust that they have been done out of a desire to worship you and to exalt your Son. We're thankful for this time when we can gather around your word together and we can be encouraged and we can be challenged. We can be reminded of what is true and what will last forever. And we pray that you would have this time be not only a time of worship, but it would also be a time where we are equipped. We are equipped to do ministry. We are equipped to do ministry in our families as well as in this city. Lord, we pray for believers who are in other places, that they, as they are worshiping together and as they are being equipped, that they would go and they would do bold ministry for the glory of Christ. Lord, I'm particularly thoughtful of those who are on the other side of the world. Even today, they're, they're already done. They're ahead of us. It's already evening there, but thinking of those who are in India having experienced what they just experienced in these last several days, we pray for believers there that they would have good, open doors of opportunity to speak the truth about Christ and the hope that is found in Him. We pray for pastors there as well, that they would have an extraordinary burden to train their people and to, to model godliness and righteousness and evangelism. Lord, we would ask that you would uh, turn what is, what is horrific into something that is great, a great opportunity for the exaltation of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. These things are especially on my mind since I'm scheduled to fly there in January. So you can pray for the National Expositors Conference. And Eric Raymond and I are supposed to go there in January. And things are, I got an email from Tom Shuck, a missionary there. And he said, we cannot guarantee your safety, but we won't go to tourist spots. So that means they can't guarantee safety and we won't have fun. So I guess that's called a pastor's conference in India, but uh, looking forward to that, and unless we're convinced otherwise, uh, the plan is to go. So be praying for those pastors who will attend, and uh, be praying that it would be a good and fruitful time of ministry in early January. It's interesting how we're reminded to pray for believers in other places uh, when tragedy strikes. We really should be praying all of the time, but there's something pronounced about those times, and these really are good times for ministry when difficult things arise. What we've been doing lately in the book of Romans is we've been, I trust, been getting a healthy dose of the reality that Christianity, first and foremost, is not about following Jesus. That Christianity, first and foremost, is the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus done on behalf of sinners like us because we don't have the ability to follow Jesus in and of ourselves. Remember, as we've been seeing in Romans 3 and 4, and we're going to see it in chapter 5, remember that if the way to heaven was following Jesus, Jesus wouldn't have had to have died. He came here and lived a righteous life for us because we couldn't even though we needed righteousness and to be with God, He came and died a sinner's death on our behalf to satisfy God's righteous requirements that say where there is sin, there must be death. And He rose again from the dead on our behalf as well. He did it all. 
This is why we say over and over again, and Christians for years and years and years have been saying as they study the Bible and as they look at Christ and as they study something like Romans, they boil it all down and say salvation is of the Lord. They say salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They don't say the way to go to heaven is just keep trying harder to be like Jesus. And again, I trust we've been getting a healthy dose of that. But what I want to do today is remind you, to be reminded myself, that while salvation is based solely and completely on what Christ has done, there is a place for you and for me if we are Christians to follow Jesus with all of our abilities and with God's help. So let's make sure that we emphasize Christ, 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 Christ. And then let's make sure we understand that if you are a Christian, you have been bought out of the slave market of sin. You've been redeemed. And now you are made a follower of Jesus. And now you want to follow Jesus, not because if you follow Him faithfully enough, He'll eventually accept you, But if you're trusting in His righteousness and His righteous work, He has already accepted you based upon His merits, not yours. But now that you belong to Him, now that you're not a slave to the devil and a slave to your own sin, you now belong to Him and now you should want to do the right thing out of gratitude, out of appreciation, not out of payment. And we're going to get there in Romans chapter 6, but I'm not sure when we're going to get there. So... I just want to take a, a, push, a push-pause moment, not taking away from what the cross is all about, but just to remind you, there is a place for following Jesus. Don't misunderstand. <laughs> and I'm afraid we might misunderstand, so let's make sure we see it's all of Christ, and when it is all of Christ, actually something happens in your life, and you actually want to serve Him, and you want to follow Him. And so this morning what we'll do is we will look at Philippians chapter 2, where we specifically are called to follow Jesus. This is not an evangelistic chapter. This is not a chapter that tells you how to get to heaven. It's addressing Christians, like many of you. If you're not a Christian, this is a message that really isn't for you because you can never follow Jesus faithfully enough to earn your way. You have to trust in Him and His righteousness and Him earning your way. But for Christians, we then are supposed to follow Jesus. And in Philippians chapter 2, we see a great, great and strong exhortation to follow Jesus if we have already gained His righteousness. And if you look with me at Philippians chapter 2, we'll look at verse 5 and we'll read a handful of verses at a very familiar text. Look with me there in verse 5 of Philippians 2 where it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, have this disposition in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. If you look at that text closely again, you'll see this is about Christ's obedience. It is about what Christ has done, even in verse 8, becoming obedient to the point of death. But then it's tied in verse 12 to our obedience. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, now we're supposed to be like Christ. We're to work out our salvation. In the very beginning of the section we read in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Without question, we are called, if we're Christians, to follow Christ, to follow His example, not to get to heaven, but because we are already citizens of heaven. And if we're citizens of heaven, then we should act like citizens of heaven. How did we become citizens? I can't emphasize it enough. Only by grace, only through faith, only in the finished work of Christ. But now we're to act like we belong to the King. And today we will be challenged specifically at looking at what I think is, is maybe the best way to, to summarize Christ's life and Christ's work. I'm going to exhort you and challenge you, and we're going to be challenged from God's Word to be followers of Jesus and not just say, well, I believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and I can do whatever I want. If you boil it all down, think in one word, it's Humility. Be humble. If you want to be Christ-like, be humble. And we will look at Christ-like humility this morning, and we will look at four evidences of Christ-like humility that show genuine Christianity, that show genuine humility. Number one, we'll just put it in one word each. Number one, submission. Number two, prayer. Number three, evangelism. And number four, service. Four Christ-like evidences of genuine humility. Submission, prayer, evangelism, and service. We won't look at one text in the Bible like we're so accustomed of doing. We'll look at multiple texts, specifically looking at Jesus, looking at His life, looking at His suffering, looking at His death, looking at His service, looking at His prayer. Because we are to be followers of Jesus if we are saved by His grace. The dictionary tells us, that to be humble is to not be proud or arrogant, reflecting a spirit of deference, and I like the ending part here, or ranking low. Now, if we further inform our definition of humility, we would say it has to do with seeing others as more important than ourselves. That's what we would add to the definition if we look at Philippians 2, right? Because Jesus did that very thing as He modeled humility for us. He looked out for our best interest above His own in one sense. And so we're going to talk about humility. Philippians 2 is the great exhortation passage, but we'll look beyond Philippians 2. One more thing before we jump into number one, and that would be, let's remember as we're defining humility, we're, 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 we're under, we're showing deference, We're looking out for the best interest of others. 
These are things that are characteristic of Christ, so they're characteristic of Christians. Let's make sure we don't add to the list of, of, of definition. Let's make sure we don't say, It's somehow essential to the definition is being powerless or being weak or being a pushover. Let's make sure we rid our minds of some extra-biblical, unbiblical image of Jesus that He is the 98-pound spiritual weakling who couldn't do anything if He tried. Jesus, the humble one, is Jesus, the one who speaks and creates. Jesus, who is all-powerful, powerful over everything. Jesus, who is promised to return and judge the world, is the humble one. He is weak in the sense that it is self-imposed weakness. It's not that he has no backbone. God doesn't call you to be uh, backboneless. He doesn't call you, if you're going to be godly, to somehow uh, be a pushover and never stand for anything because that's humility. That's not the humility we see from Jesus. He's got all the power in the world, if you will, at his fingertips. Something we don't have. And he's strong. And he purposely puts himself under for the good of others. It's a good picture. Number one, submission. How can I show Christ-likeness in my life? When I look at Jesus and I look at his life, what do I see? Well, I see submission. Now, I don't know about you, but when I just hear that word, I don't like it. Right? It chafes against your spiritual skin in a bad way. I need some spiritual ointment. I don't like that. Submission? Submission submission makes me somehow think that somehow I'm supposed to be underneath somebody. Uh, Submission means somehow somebody is above me. Submission? That's a 1950s thing, isn't it? Maybe 1750s, but surely not now. Well... It's always chafed against us since the fall of humanity. But Jesus himself, let's turn to Luke chapter 22 and let's see that Jesus is characterized by, in his life, by submission. Submitting to the will of the Father and we see it as clear as can be. Yes, we're rebels by nature, so we don't like submission. But as Christians, we've been credited with Christ's righteousness not only that, he, he kicks in sanctification and so now we're growing and we're, we're maturing as Christians and so we, we, we actually should not just always act like the rebels that we are by nature. We want to be like Jesus and Jesus is one who is characterized by submission. In Luke 22, verse 41, uh, I, I, I can't take time, I guess, to, to set it up and to dramatize it as it should be, but things are, are, are the most intense as they could possibly be at this point in time. It says in verse 41, and he withdrew, Jesus withdrew from them, from the disciples, about a stone's throw, a stone's throw from the Mount of Olives. So there he is, he goes in, uh, into exclusion, he goes off to be by himself. He could practically see where he will be crucified. He certainly can see the area where he will be crucified. 
It's all there compressed in the Jerusalem area. And he knelt down and began to pray. Verse 42 says, saying, Father. And I don't know how to read it, quite frankly. Just know that I'm doing a horrible job reading it. I'm not even going to try to read it the way it should be read. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Cup, remember, associated with wrath. Yet not my will, but yours be done. There you have it. He's ready to face the worst thing anyone could ever, will ever face. And he's pleading with his father, knowing how awful it is. He himself knowing exactly what's going to happen, but nevertheless, it's so horrible, he, he has to make the request, uh, if it be your will, take it away, but, 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 but not my will your will be done submitting to the will of the Father takes my mind back to Philippians 2.8 he humbled himself by becoming obedient we could use the synonym submissive to the point of death even death on a cross not my will but yours be done he had a mindset for obedience he was submissive to his father's will he was submissive to what his father wanted And in Philippians chapter 2, what are we called to be? We are called to be Christ-like. We're called to be humble. And the example that's given is Jesus giving His life for the good of others. Obeying the will of the Father. There isn't a better example. There isn't a bigger example. There isn't a more radical example. So everything else, quite frankly, is easy in comparison But let the point be made. Let the record show. In Philippians 2, without question, if you're a Christian, you are called to be humble, seek the good of others by submitting to the will of the Father. This is really helpful and important for us to be reminded of. all of Christ. We need to emphasize that till our dying day. It needs to be the loudest drumbeat that will ever be heard from this church or from you if you're a Christian. It's the essence of Christianity. But if you are a Christian, you'll follow Jesus. What did Jesus say in John chapter 10? He said... My sheep hear my voice. And they what? They listen. They follow. John chapter 14. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You know, sometimes my mindset is, well, you know, I don't have to do or do anything because Jesus did it all. And you know what? My, my, my Christianity is He did it all and I love Him. Don't, don't tell me I have to submit. And Jesus is the one who says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Oh, so the the way that I show my appreciation, so the way that I show my love for Jesus, one of the ways is I do what he says. 
And the same is true for you. Couldn't get more practical than this because the Bible speaks to so many different issues. You, you, you tell me an area of your life and I will tell you, you need to submit to God's will in that area of your life. Your morality, your work, your relationship with your husband or your wife, your relationship with your kids, your relationship with your parents. The Bible talks about all of these issues and we can know the will of God regarding those issues. What do I need to do? I need to submit to God and what does God say about these things because then I'm showing that I'm so thankful that Jesus bought me and I'm not a slave to sin anymore. In fact, I, I, the Bible would tell me in Romans 6, I'm actually a slave to righteousness. Not my will, God, but your will be done. So obedience has a huge place in the Christian life. But make sure you put it in the right place. Make sure you put obedience as the cart behind the horse. And we've been emphasizing that a lot. But I don't want to somehow make you think or be under the impression that there is no cart. If the works are the cart, there is a cart. It comes after. It comes as a result. This is why so many people throughout the ages have said salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that faith, which is that salvation, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, will not remain alone. Well, that's what we would learn from Philippians chapter 2. That's what we would learn from Jesus. Let's move to a second. Number two, humility shown in prayer. Humility shown in prayer. I don't really want to leave number one. Man, being a pastor is hard. <laughs> Got all this stuff in my head. Itching just to talk about more. You know, if I were going to, just exercise privilege and, you know. I would say, I'm not going to, but I would say. <laughs> yes, I am. I'm just being silly. <laughs> Back to the number one thing. You know what? We're talking about God. If God is God, then He tells you what to do. By nature of the fact that He's God. And you're not. Right? I mean, this submission makes a lot of sense. Who are you to tell me what to do? Oh, God. You know, and I've been using that one a lot lately, but it makes so much sense to me. If he's not God, he has no right to tell you what to do. But if he's God, he can say, here's my will and, and, and we submit. And better yet, if he's our Savior, we actually want to do what he says. If he's our Father, he, he knows what's best for us, we want to do what he says. If you make that negative, though, when I say, my will be done on earth as I wish it was in heaven, right? When I don't do what God says, that's in effect what I'm saying, even though I would never say it. And that's practical idolatry. Because I'm saying, I'm God. This is why texts like 1 Samuel 15, I believe it is, talks about how disobedience or rebellion is as the sin of divination, witchcraft. Because when you don't do what God says, you're an idolater. 
Because you're saying, I'm God and he's not. So if I were going to take more time on number one, I would say things like I just did. You guys don't think it's funny. And that's why I'll keep my day job. All right, number two. <laughs> Prayer. Prayer is something that we are called to do in the New Testament. First Thessalonians 5.17, we're told to pray without ceasing. Where did the Apostle Paul come up with that? Pray all the time. Well, let me just, for the sake of time, give you the rapid-fire list. Here's what Jesus did. He prayed alone in the morning, Mark 1.35. He prayed alone on the mountain in the evening after a day's ministry, Matthew 14.23. He prayed alone and frequently in the wilderness, Luke 5.16. He prayed at his baptism, Luke 3.21. He prayed with thanksgiving for the Father's provisions, Matthew 15.36. He prayed as an example, Matthew 6.5 and following, Luke 11.1. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26.36. He prayed with intense fervency to the point of sweating blood, Luke 22.44. He prayed for the te- protection and spiritual growth of others, Matthew, or John 17. He prayed for the forgiveness of the lost while on the cross, Luke 23.34. He prayed throughout his crucifixion, my God, my God, into your hands I commit my spirit and other things as well, Matthew 27.46, Luke 23.46. And all of this by the one who said earlier in his ministry, before Abraham was, I am. He's God. But he's not just God, he's also man. He's the God-man. And so he's showing submission to the Father perfectly. And he does that one way by praying, 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 praying. And if the one who is man and God is so moved to pray, I need to pray. If I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm going to pray. And now, 1 Thessalonians 5 makes more sense. Christians pray without ceasing because our founder, our Savior, prayed all of the time in all different situations. And so if I can put my pastoral arm around you, so to speak, I'm reminding you it's all of grace, only through faith, In Christ, you don't get to heaven by praying. But if you're a citizen of heaven, you belong to Jesus, you you pray. That's just what you do, and you're commanded to do it. You know, as as we breathe physically, it's just part of life. We're, We're supposed to pray. It's just part of spiritual life. And maybe, again, just pastorally, it might help you and encourage you for me to say, it's not all about me, but I'll just use myself as an example here, the longer I'm a Christian... In many ways, the less formal my praying is. Now, I'm not saying there's never a place for formal praying. We do it. I'm not saying I somehow treat God like He's, you know, my buddy. But when you read the Psalms, and you read the Bible, and it says pray without ceasing, and you read about the life of Jesus, and He's praying about all different kinds of things in all different ways. How about in all different postures before God? It becomes pretty healthy for you spiritually. When, when tragedy is striking, what do you do? Um, dear God. Close my eyes. I have to... You say, God, help me! Well, that would be biblical praying. You don't know what's happening. You're, you're at the end of your rope. We you read the Psalms and you know what? It sounds like he's at the end of his rope. How long is this going to go on, God? doesn't mean we're always praying like that. 
We're confessing our sin before Him. We're asking for forgiveness. So that's going to look a lot different. But you know, it's not the, 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 the sanitized, you know, okay, praying is kneeling down by the bed and now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord, however it goes. I'm so glad I forgot. Said it a million times growing up. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Something like that, right? Or come Lord Jesus, be our guest. Let this food to us be blessed. Amen. I remember that one. No idea what it means. He's praying all the time. Talking to God. That's what prayer is. Yes, showing humility, but you know what? The fact that you're praying shows humility. Because you're sending the signal that you're dependent. That you're submitting to the Father. We pray. At home, in our cars, at work, at school, in desperation, in thanksgiving, in private, and in public. Now I'll go to the negative side of it. On one level, one of the greatest acts of pride, opposite of humility, is when we don't pray. Again, it looks a lot like idolatry. The signal is, I don't need you, God. You know what? Things are going great, and it's because I am so good at planning and organizing. Or things are going horribly and I've got to fix all this stuff. Oh, more bad luck. You are such a pagan in your worldview. You don't sound like a Christian. Neither do I when I think that way or talk that way. God who's in control of everything, God who works all things together for good for those who love Him, God who is a God who's involved in His universe. I'm talking to God. I don't understand. Okay, God, I don't understand. God, I need help. God, I need help. God, I need forgiveness. God, I need forgiveness. But it's just what we do in life. It's what Jesus did in life. He's doing it all of the time. So one of our greatest acts of independence as a church at Omaha Bible Church would be if you don't pray. And if we don't pray, because we don't need God. We need to pray. Be Jesus-like, Christ-like. Let's move on to a third truism for Christian humility or a third mark of genuine Christian humility, and that would be evangelism. It would be evangelism may surprise you that it's on the list. I'm sure we could add other things to the list. We could rearrange the list. But, you know, Jesus was constantly telling people to follow Him. He was constantly calling people to Himself. We would say He was constantly evangelizing. Now, granted, His message looks a little bit different than what we say the message is because He hadn't gone to the cross yet. But there's a lot there for us to learn about the way He calls people to Himself because He Himself calls us as disciples. Before He left this earth, He made it clear that we are to call people to Jesus. So let's talk about this matter of evangelism. If we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to tell people to follow Jesus. We're going to tell people the gospel. And let's look at this from some different angles. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, that's where I'd like to begin. Let's see that Jesus called people to Himself boldly. 
So many times our evangelism is, you know, um, I would, I'm just going to share Jesus and that kind of means I'm going to tell people about who Jesus was and what he did and if they would like to have a better life and they can have a better life and um, you know what, I'm just going to, you know, this is on your own terms and this is just up to you. This is between you and God and you know, if you feel, if you so feel led then maybe this is something you'd like for your life and you know, good motives written all over it. All in the name of we're trying to be humble. But we could probably use a little dose of, uh, uh, of stiffening. And I think if we look to see what Jesus said to people, it might help us with that. So, in, in Ma- And I realize we're not Jesus, but we're to follow him, and there's certainly a lot to learn. So let's look at Matthew 4.17, where it says, he's just been baptized by John, he's been tempted by Satan. And then it says in verse 17, Matthew chapter 4, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, if you'd like to invite me into your life and uh, let me take control, then I... <laughs> Keep reading. Repent, is what he says. For the kingdom of God is at hand. It doesn't get any bolder than that. You know what you need to do? Evangelism 101? You need to repent, is what you need to do. That, that doesn't look very humble to me. Well, it is humble if you stop and think about it. If he really is who he said he was if he really is who God says he was when he was speaking from heaven, if he really is the promised Messiah, and if the kingdom of God really is at hand, you know, the most beneficial thing you could do for other people is not stroke their ego. It's to say, repent! Repent or you're going to perish! That's that's the the most humble thing. The most prideful thing is somehow I'm not going to tell them what is true for fear that they won't like me. I couldn't be more arrogant. Repent. Keep reading. We ascertain even more about this boldness in verse 18. Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And he said, I'd like to do a survey with you and, you know, what's keeping you from going to church and being a follower of Jesus? No. What does he say? Verse 19, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Command mode. You know what you guys need? You need to stop being fishermen. That's our livelihood. This is what we do. And this is our identity is wrapped up in this. Didn't you take the class on how to do evangelism? Sharing your faith without fear or something? You're scaring us, Jesus. Yeah. Follow me. And if I'm the Messiah, and I'm adding to this so you understand, if he's the Messiah, then this isn't prideful. This isn't arrogant. This is the best thing for them. This is humble. The Father says he's Messiah. He says he's Messiah. Others, even supernaturally uh, illuminated, says he's Messiah. So this is the most humble thing imaginable. But do notice, this isn't nonchalantly dropping spiritual suggestions. It says preach. Verse 23, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And if Jesus is who we think he is, then this makes sense and it's not prideful or arrogant. Now we could say, and I've already alluded to this, we could say, well, but that is Jesus and we're not Jesus and I'm glad you figured that out. That's good. Um, this is like, this is good. We're on to something. But 
when we read on and we read like Acts, Jesus' closest followers are echoing the same message. Thinking of Acts 17 and the Apostle Paul, after explaining things, after giving enough gospel content so that they would know what they would believe in or what they would reject. So he's being thoughtful, he's being careful, but having given them the right data, he says, repent. In fact, he says, God is calling everyone everywhere to repent. And that is the most arrogant, prideful thing imaginable if Jesus isn't the Messiah. But if Jesus is the Messiah, it's the most loving, generous, humble thing anyone could ever do. Because you're really trying to help them. And you're risking your own popularity. You're risking your own relationships by doing it. And it becomes helpful. And I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody else. Think about the arrogance involved if, if, if I or if you find ourselves doctoring up the message, meddling. We just left, uh, to use another analogy, we just left the kitchen and we were working for this great and wonderful world-renowned chef and he creates the masterpiece and on the way to the table, because you're the server, you pull out the salt from your pocket. A little pepper. Couldn't be more arrogant. soften this a little bit. Maybe you should add some cream. It's just not quite right. Seems like good motives. Couldn't be more arrogant. Because we're in effect saying, Jesus, um, you didn't have enough um, social skills, I guess. You just don't understand where we are as a culture. Um, you know, we've really changed a lot and people just aren't willing to accept it the way they used to accept it. I don't want to be arrogant. But we've, we've started to confuse, confuse arrogance with humility. And in the name of humility, we get out the cream. And we take out the eraser and we change the, the biblical picture of Jesus and make him look a little nicer, a little more gentle, a little bit more like me, if not grandpa. It's not good. It's the most arrogant thing we could do. The most humble thing we could do is, okay, here's the meal. It's made by the all-knowing chef. He knows what he's doing. And it's my job to get the food to the table without messing it up. That's my job. I say, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> Let's look at this from a different perspective, still on evangelism. Jesus called people pointedly. Let's, let's look at Matthew chapter 10. We see that he not only calls people boldly to follow him, and we should call people boldly to follow him. Uh, and, and I added, you go to Matthew 10, but I, I, was, I tried to be a little bit careful there when I took you to Acts 17, even though I didn't take you there. I, I referenced it. It's not that Paul just showed up and just said one thing. He didn't just show up and stand up on a podium and say, Repent! He gave them the gospel. He explained who Jesus was. He explained who they were. He, he gave them the bigger picture. And then he said, repent. So please don't misunderstand. I'm not asking you to go somewhere and start yelling at people. And I don't think the Bible is asking us. To, there's a context, and hopefully that helps to, to make some sense. 
Well, let's see in Matthew 10, verse 32, where this is, this is pretty pointed. He says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Ah, that's, that's good. That's gospel truth. Verse 33, But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Oh, man. Wipe, wipe out verse 33 with cream. No, don't, because we're trying to get his message there. Verse 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. And I'm reading that going, What? What about that song? Peace on earth, can it be? Well, keep reading. I didn't come to bring peace on earth. I came to, did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Now, it's true that he came to bring peace if you read Isaiah 9, but he didn't only come to bring peace. He also came to bring a sword. And we've got to make sure we're willing and able to talk about both. And in this particular context, it was necessary for him to talk about the latter. Verse 35, For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. And he who loves father or mother more than me, see, that's really the issue here, is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Verse 38, And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Wow! And if that's not extreme enough, turn back to Matthew 8, verse 21, one of the most intense friendship evangelism scenes I've ever seen. In verse, chapter 8, verse 21, another of the disciples, a follower, using that term in a general sense, said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. In verse 21, he says that. And we can't be certain, but many Bible-believing commentators would pose the question at least and say, you know what, it may very well be that his father hasn't even died yet. You know, uh, just can, 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 can you give me some time here? Um, I got an inheritance coming and, you know, got some issues to take care of and then I'll be happy to follow you. And then Jesus says in verse 22, but Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Gulp. You know, it's like Jesus, uh, you know, submits a, submits a manuscript to a Christian publisher. And, uh, and it says, yeah, I would like to have you publish this. And, you know, how about if he sent him that? A whole book explaining that. Discipleship like Jesus. Evangelism 101 from the lips of Jesus himself. I think they would respond back and say, you know, lots of red marks. Uh, Dear Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> You know, have you considered anger management classes? <laughs> and, uh, you know, this just isn't pal- palatable for people who are as sophisticated as the people we're trying to reach. And you get the idea. This is, this is radical stuff. Try sometime telling people the gospel. It's salvation in Christ alone. It's only by grace, only through faith. And Jesus knew and believed all of those things. And we can see that in other accounts. But he also knew to inform people well enough as to who he is and what he requires of his followers to to go ahead and not bait and switch him. Try it sometime. In fact, I would encourage you to do it. You you evangelize someone. You tell them all about the greatness of Christ. You tell them all about the free gift of salvation. You tell them the whole deal. And you try it with someone who says, you know what? You're describing my life. This makes sense to me. I need to be saved. I need to repent. What do I do? And make it clear that it's based upon nothing they do. But then take them to some of these passages. It's absolutely 
amazing. Literally, I've talked to people before. I wish I could say I've done it a hundred times. There's only one time I can think of. Maybe more than one, but one time really sticks out of my head. We've gone through everything, gone through the gospel. Yes, 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 yes. And it's like, man, God is really doing amazing things here. Yes, 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 yes. And I'm going, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on. Wait, no, no, no. And now remember, I used to be a salesman. I know how to close the deal. You know, I can get the pen out, the nice, you know, fancy pen. And, you know, is there anything keeping you from moving ahead today, sir? And I mean, I can do all that. Instead... I've had to repent of all that when it comes to pastoral ministry. I'm saying, um, are you sure this is something you want to get into? Oh, yes. We want forgiveness. We want Christ's righteousness. Well, you know what? You need to make sure you know what you're getting into. <laughs> In fact, let's look, at, let's, let's look up some passages. You know, we call them the hard sayings of Jesus because if you're really going to trust in Christ, you know, you're going to get all of Christ, not just the part you want. And you know what? Let's look at Matthew chapter 10. You know what? If the Spirit of God is working in their hearts, they won't flinch. But at least then they know what they're getting into. They're going to find, let me just tell you, they're going to find out anyway. Don't bait and switch them. Tell them about all this great, wonderful stuff for their life, and then they come here and hear me. It's bad news. I don't want to be your bad cop. <laughs> Tell people about who Jesus is. All of Him. And if God has opened their eyes to believe the gospel and God is drawing them, you can't tell them enough scary stories from Matthew chapter 10. They will believe in Him and they will follow Him just as His disciples did back in the day. Jesus was strong about this. There's one more thing we need to talk about regarding evangelism, which means we'll run out of time and just briefly cover number four. But that is that Jesus called people to follow him. Jesus called, Jesus evangelized people and he did so with a strong emphasis on the exclusivity of himself. And here's where we get humility and pride confused. We're under the impression that the most arrogant thing on God's green earth is to tell someone that if you don't believe in Jesus, there's no other way. Watch Larry King when they talk about spiritual things. When Al Mohler is one of the few people who has enough guts to actually quote the Bible and say, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. Are you saying, the guy with the purple dress on and the backwards collar, you know, are you saying that if you don't believe in Jesus, you, you, you're, you're going to go to hell when you die? And for him to say, that's what Jesus said. So that's what I'm saying. And for him to be called a spiritual bigot, and painted, Al Mohler to be called that, and to be painted as the most arrogant. Who knows what they call him if they weren't on primetime TV. And you know what? There's something in us maybe as we're so culturally conditioned and we might think, you know, that is arrogant. It's not very loving at all. There's something in us that we want to drift into that. Well, Let's look and see what Jesus did. John 3.16 is a great passage to go to. Let's go ahead and turn there. I know we've talked about this not too long ago. 
but it's all around. We see it and we're threatened by it and we don't have a good explanation. We're just meant to feel arrogant and prideful and sometimes we wonder, you know what, maybe, maybe this is arrogant. Maybe it is prideful to say that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. Or maybe, okay, well, Jesus is the only Savior, but you don't have to have conscious faith in Him because you know what's going to happen is people are just going to do their very best and then eventually they're going to get to heaven and they're going to see that Jesus got them there. That's like the softened down version. Well, that's not what Jesus talked about. Jesus in John 3.16, which is typically known as the most inclusive passage that, that we know of, at least on the surface, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. Man, that seems really inclusive. And I think, I think it's, it is inclusive. God so loved the world, literally God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten, more literally, that He gave His unique Son, His one and only Son, that whoever, man, that's inclusive too. That's awesome. That's broad, the breadth of God's mercy, that whoever believes in Him, literally all the believing on Him once, or believing in Him once, shall not perish but have eternal life. That's a, that's a great passage. If you believe in Jesus, you'll have eternal life. It's a broad passage. God loves the world like this and He gives His unique Son and all the believing in Him ones. All who believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And then it's even more wonderful in verse 17, for God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Again, it's so good that it's so broad. But don't read the Bible like a cultist. Read it in context. Verse 18 says, Jesus speaking here, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Just watched one of those interviews recently this week. And the guy said, and they asked the guy, and they said, you know what? Uh, 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 do you believe? Do you believe that if you don't believe in Jesus, you'll be judged? Pastor so-and-so? Um, it's not my place to judge. No, 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 it's not my place to judge. That's God's place. Man, it sounds good. But Jesus said, you will be judged. He flat out said it right there. John 3.18, right by 3.16. You've been judged already. Can you imagine if the guy said that? But he says it. We can go to Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Broad. I know we just talked about this, but I'm going to do it again. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. Matthew 28, 18, I believe it is. Broad, all authority. So then what does he say to the disciples? Go and make disciples of all nations. Broad, 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 broad. Oh, I love Jesus. He's so inclusive. And he is. And you should love him for that, without question. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded, including I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. How about that? 
Remember, the inclusivity of Jesus is what drives the exclusivity of Jesus. If he is God's only begotten son, his one unique son, then there's one way to the Father. If it's all nations, make disciples of all of them. Acts 4.12 makes more sense. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So now it's conscious faith in the person because there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. You say, why are you making such a big deal out of this? Because we're at the point where we think it's arrogant to say Jesus is the only way. What is ultimate arrogance? For God from heaven to say multiple times in multiple ways, even from the mouth of His very own Son. Remember, what did He say about His Son? This is My Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Ultimate arrogance is for me to say, no, there's other ways. Forget what Jesus said. I am the most prideful, arrogant piece of work on planet earth. Jesus just draws the line over and over and over again. And by us, in the name of love, saying He didn't say that, what are we doing? We're not seeking the best for other people. We're lying to them. You see, all this is positive. This isn't a mean and high-handed kind of thing. Apart from perfect righteousness, which everyone needs and no religion offers... Apart from the perfect righteousness of Christ's life and then His death and then having His resurrection, apart from that, we think we're somehow going to work our way to God and people are in for a huge surprise. So the most humble thing is yes to agree with God, yes to agree with Jesus, and yes to know that people need righteousness. That good works can't buy because good works bring filthy rags. No one does good, no, not one. It all comes back to that. And so the most humble thing in the world is for us to stop lying to people and to tell them, you know what, you've got a huge problem. And there's only one solution, and God has provided the solution. And it's in the righteousness of Jesus, in His life, in His death, in His resurrection. And, 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 and you've got to trust in Him. But that's risky, because people aren't going to like me. I might get fired. Lose people like mother, father, mother-in-law, father-in-law. Man's enemies will be in his own household. Right? They crucified Jesus for exclusivity, among other things. I get worked up about this because we don't have an answer and we don't think through these things as Christians. We don't love people. We love ourselves. We love ourselves so much that we're not willing to tell people about the one and only place where they can find righteousness. And the single signal I'm sending is, I love myself. I love myself. I want to love other people. And by the way, I do love myself. And I want to love myself less. I want to be like Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And that's a great text. But if you keep reading, some of you have memorized it, He's talking about the same things we're talking about. For it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
It is the one message of hope. And you know what? I'm not ashamed to say that I believe that is what he's saying. And and we're way wrong in our thinking if we think, well, yeah, but that was back then, you know, when monotheism was a big hit. And now, you know, we live in a pluralistic culture and a pluralistic society and we've got this global economic kind of community and, you know, now there's so many different gods and, you know, we've got to relearn history. You know? Yes, Jews were to believe in the one true God, but there were so many polytheists all around that the Jews were constantly getting their hands dabbling in polytheism. It was all over the place to the point where, again, Paul in Acts 17, he's there in Athens and they've got idols set up to, to gods that they haven't even thought up yet. There are so many gods everywhere and they're so polyistic in their thinking, pluralistic in their thinking, they're setting up altars just in case there are gods they've forgotten about. I mean, we ain't seen nothing when it comes to pluralism. And for him then, by the grace of God, to launch that great letter of Romans to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Let me go on record amidst a pluralistic culture and society. Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to the Jew and to the Greek, which makes sense why he says it is the power of God. I love that. I want to be able to say that. Sometimes I can. and Sometimes I can. Sometimes as a church, I think we do a good job Sometimes we don't. But I want to be able to say that more often than I can say it now. Not ashamed of the gospel. Fourthly and finally, I'll just reference it in one text. If we're going to be Christ-like, we're going to be humble. We're not going to make excuses for Him. We're going to proclaim how great He is. Number four, though, service. We're going to serve. We're going to serve each other. Mark chapter 10 is the classic text on this. Having witnessed an argument, who's best? I want to be there with you, Jesus. I want to be best. I want to rule. I want to reign. I want prominence. And Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man, I, I can't help myself, but just to say, that, that comes from Daniel seven thirteen and following, and Son of Man in Daniel seven thirteen is not a title for humanity. Son of Man is a title for Messiah. If anything, in the context, it's a a title for deity, which will make sense if you read this, where he says, even the Son of Man, even the Divine Eternal One, even the Messiah, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. People who follow Jesus have got to get it through their thick skulls. We've got to get it in our minds. That if we follow Jesus, we're servants. It's not all about us showing up so we can grace other people with our presence. Oh, you know, aren't you happy, Pastor? I came to church today. Oh, thank you so much. Glad you could be here. You are really special. I hope I can say that on one level. 
But what characterizes a Christian, oh, and you know, should I say, how can we serve you today? Well, that's true on one level, absolutely. But the rest of the story is, how can we serve you as you're serving us? Because that's what Christians do. Being a Christian isn't about showing up, and I don't just mean here. The idea is Christians follow Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for many, the ultimate act of service, and he's making the point with his disciples, you know, hello, you're a follower of mine and you think somehow everything revolves around you? I came, and what did I come here for? I came here to give my life. And so we're, we're here to follow Jesus, trusting in him, and that shows itself in serving. It shows itself in the one another's. It shows itself in the maturing of a church. As we grow spiritually, we can talk about gifts and we can talk about those things which we don't have time to do. Maybe I'll end this way. What does Omaha need in a church? I just talked to someone after first service and they said there are three new churches going up in my neighborhood and each of the pastors have contacted me about being a part of the church. Oh, what is needed? Well, maybe we need a church that's bigger. I don't think so. A church that's smaller. I don't think so. There's nothing wrong with a big church, nothing wrong with a small church, medium-sized church. That's not the greatest need. Maybe we need a church that's more revolved around the youth. Well, we don't have a biblical basis for that. Maybe we need a church that's more centered around the, the, the older people. Don't have a biblical basis for that. We need a church that serves a certain demographic. Uh, we, no, we don't have a biblical basis for that. We, we, what we need is... You know what we need? We just... We need churches that are Christian. Believing the gospel. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, which does not remain alone. And so what do we do? We submit to God. That's the greatest thing we could do for the city of Omaha. And we show our submission to God in humility by praying. And we show our commitment to God and our submission to God and our humility by preaching the biblical gospel, not the one with the cream-filled center. And we show our submission to God and our obedience to God and we glorify Christ by being servants, serving people. You know what? If those three churches are all about those things, then praise God. But that's what we need to be. That's the greatest need without question. It's the greatest need in the world. We want to help other churches who are committed to those things, and we want them to help us because we need help. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for uh, an opportunity to sort of speed ahead to Romans 6 in a way because we're not there yet. Just as a reminder that we actually are supposed to live a certain way, and we actually are supposed to do certain things. We're thankful that you promised to build your church in this world, so it's not up to us. But we want to be used by you in the process. God, please expose hidden sin in areas where these things are not happening. As painful and as scary as it is to ask that, I pray that you would. You would expose it first on a personal level. But you would just keep exposing it on whatever level it needs to be exposed on so that we can be all about being used by you as you build your church. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for His sacrifice and complementing the sacrifice. Thank you for His example. In Jesus' name, amen.